0: Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. All right. It's Thursday
1: at 420 p.m. Eastern. That means it's time for Office Hours, Arroya's weekly podcast for cultivators to hear from the experts and talk to each other about what they're seeing with their grows. My name's Keisha. I am co-moderating with my good friend, Mandy. How's it going over there, Mandy?
0: Hey, Keisha, we're here for episode 46 live with our growing c- cultivation community and live also over on YouTube. Uh, wherever you're tuning in from, make sure you send us your questions and I'll make sure I get those over to the team. A uh, couple of quick announcements before we do get started. Uh, do check out our case study from Ascension Farm. Uh, they're our latest team of growers to- that we're featuring as a part of our Arroyo Grow series. Uh, so I'll post the link on our story on our Instagram right after this. Uh, so, yeah, check Check that out to read about all the success that they're having in their grows. Uh, A final announcement before I do send it back over to Keisha. If you're going to MJ BizCon in Vegas next week, make sure you reach out to us uh, and we can set up a time to meet with you, schedule something, hang out. Yeah, we'll make it happen. Um, But yeah, you know what we're here for. I'm excited for this one. So I'm going to throw it back over to you, Keisha.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. If you're here with us live, you have a question, type it in the chat at any time. We're going to do a little bit different format today because it's a very special session. We are offering a preview of Arroyo's new irrigation control feature, so we're going to answer questions after the fact. But Seth and Jason, ready to get us started on this wonderful preview?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we're... uh we're excited to to be launching this obviously it's been in the works for quite a while we've always intended to have some type of control integrations fortunately enough you know in the market open sprinkler has been very prolific in um medium and some large facilities so great portion of our clients are using open sprinkler we have obviously had the opportunity of working with their open API to get it integrated into our system and uh, we've kind of built on some of their simplicity to make those features available through Arroya. so without further ado let's get the screen share going and We'll do a quick walkthrough on how to set it up how to configure channels walk through some of the advantages of using it with Arroyo and then we'll also go through some of the basic operations that you'd expect to be setting up once you're integrated let's get this shared so this is uh, a live demo this is a real facility here at my house actually and (laughs) uh so it's, it's not much facility, but it's a great example for this setup and tutorial systems. So basically what, from the client side, we'll need to do is have the client get on our list for setup with OpenSprinkler. We'll enable the feature for your system in a timely manner, and then we'll work with you just to make sure that initial setup's good to go and you have the education that you need to be using it proactively. So when you jump into the setup, page this is where you'll be adding a controller let's make my screen just a little bigger for everybody here and i already have a controller added but we'll just walk through the steps for adding a controller added mine earlier today just to make sure that we can make this happen as fast as possible first options uh controller host or ip name uh this or controller host name or ip address this is pretty easy to get this is just the network address of your open sprinkler it's available basically in three common areas the first one would be on the face of the open sprinkler that's going to show the the ip address that it's using the other one would be from the web interface that you're used to using uh, to control your open sprinkler it'll just be the um, the digits at the beginning of that url and or the lastly, you can jump into your router and go to devices or, or users on that network, and it will uh, be showing up there as well. So in this case, it's usually going to be something like 192.168 if it's on a local network. Some networks are set up like 10.10, etc. One thing here is you will want to make sure that you're connecting the um, OpenSprinkler on the same network as your Arroyo gateway. Next is our port. This is going to be the port by default would be port 80 for open sprinkler. You'll only need to change this if you've changed to a separate port on your open sprinkler. The password by default on open sprinklers is open door. If you've changed that password, make sure you get it correct. Uh, case sensitive, all that good stuff. Selecting a gateway. Uh, if you only have one gateway to your facility, like it says, just make sure it's on the same network as your open sprinkler. If you have more than one gateway, make sure that you choose a gateway that is on the same subnet or uh, LAN as the open sprinkler that you're trying to connect. And then device name, this can be whatever you call it. Maybe you call it upstairs open sprinkler or rooms one and two open sprinkler, et cetera. Just, Just a human readable name to give it an easy identifier. After all these entries are in, we will say save down here in the bottom right. And it's going to start connecting to that controller. It can take up to two minutes. Basically, it's installing uh, some updates on your gateway to let it know to communicate with your OpenSprinkler. Advantages of using the OpenSprinkler through Arroyo, uh, since we are in talking about networks right now, if you're used to using your OpenSprinkler, it's likely that you have done port forwarding through your network to access your OpenSprinkler. Port forwarding is natively not a very secure, probably not a safe way for almost any. Business to be accessing a device on their network. And so when you're using uh, aroya and Open Sprinkler, the external communication is no longer needed directly to your Open Sprinkler. So, what's happening when you are in working with our interface is any of the information that you're inputting here is going to go through our secure software directly to our gateway and the gateway is only going to be connecting locally to your open sprinkler so that's a really nice advantage for any of the facilities that you know haven't set up a vpn or don't other have other secure ways to access their open sprinkler once this open sprinkler is communicated we'll see this last communication over here on the right side as now or very recently and it'll tell us things like the model, location and channels. In this case, you can see I have 0 of 24 channels enabled or configured, excuse me. And what you'll notice here is we I have one expansion. That's why it says 24 channels. So, OpenSprinkler has eight channels on the core and then 16 channels per an expansion board. And what we'll want to do, this is basically the first step in telling your system what channels are related to what zones. So obviously this case, we're looking at channel one and I'm gonna have that allocated to remote one, zone one. And then let's jump in here and say remote one, let's go to zone two for channel two.
3: And just get these set up pretty clean. Should also point out right now too that you can use your open sprinkler to control your pump with a master zone as well Um, a lot of people have that set up already and you can set it up from the same menu right here super easy any of the ports can be used as the master
2: exactly and basically uh, so you'll see over here on the left side we've got this drip drip icon with a drop down If we select the master it'll show us a crown on top of our drip drips it'll allocate it as master and then we can select from any of the other zones what they use as a master so in this case let's say we have a main valve going to room or a main valve on channel 5 it's controlling remote one as the room and then we have sub valves in there controlling each zone in this case when we do any irrigation scheduling for say zone one two three or four it'll also enable that channel five to open up the valve or run a pump ss set so great that you mentioned that and we'll say save it's gonna push this because save succeeded very cool and then The next thing that i like to do is also set up some of the auxiliary information for my open sprinkler and this necessarily isn't uh, required for your setup but what it's going to do is help you keep track of your substrate information and flow rate so that you can calculate things like percentage of irrigation or you can run it as a volume of irrigation rather than just uh, irrigation time which is nice back-end math feature Uh, obviously we've got single block uh, stacked block on slab this could even be like a four by four uh, in a cocoa pot or any of those types of things and then slab with multiple blocks really all we're asking for here is how much substrate volume per plant and then number of emitters per plant and flow rate of the plant and that's going to basically allow a very approximate um, calculation of volume or percentage and you know one thing I think we have said in the past and I'll mention it again here sure you can refer to your manuals for getting the emitter flow rate but one of the best things to do just for your own Peace of mind is do some test irrigation runs into volumetric um plask or a cup and then measure the weight of it that is just to check that your uh, printed flow rate is exactly what is coming out of that system all right so basically we're through the setup of it which i think i made it sound a lot more complicated than it is but uh, that gives you the full tutorial of how to get one set up when we go over what this does for us now is, we can think about some of the ways that we have set up uh, an open sprinkler, and basically they are building programs. When we do programs in Arroya, we can actually combine programs. So most of you are used to having one program for your P1 events, another program for your P2 events that type of thing. In this case, we can combine those into what we're calling a schedule and we can build new irrigation templates. So that's a schedule that can be applied to any of our recipes. And so when we think of recipes, they are allocating different operations for the specific um, phases of plant life cycle. And we could say, all right, we wanna use our generative stacking and we can look at this generative stacking and we'll see that this template is gonna be referencing how we wanna irrigate for our generative stacking. You might even go in there and say, you know, generative week two, generative week three, and break it down even farther. That's really just gonna be up to how you run your irrigation schedules um, and how easily you wanna track that stuff. One of the things that also wouldn't be a bad idea is make sure that you're specifying your substrate Uh, You know, anytime I'm talking about building recipes, we wanna have our substrate in there. Are we using a six by six block? Are we using a grow down slab of a specific size? Um, Are we using um, any of that type of information, cocoa? I would even separate cocoa from uh, rock wool, even if it's the same volume. So then obviously when we go into a recipe, we can apply those different irrigations to the recipe. You can either build new ones right into the recipe, or we can use this drop-down right next to it and say, let's use our vegetative bulking. We can see there's what we've got, doing four times to get up to field capacity, another eight times to get some maintenance shots in there. We'll save that, save to our recipe and we'll see that anytime we apply this recipe to a new harvest group, we'll have those irrigations applied for the duration of it. So rather than going into your open sprinkler and flipping back and forth, trying to track your plants life cycle and making the appropriate changes on the exact day that you need to, we can go in here and apply uh, irrigation schedules. So we have different irrigations for our generative, for our vegetative. At day 14, it's going to Uh, apply these new, uh, or excuse me, 21. So at day 14, we'll be applying this one. At day 21, it'll be applying the new uh, irrigation schedule. Very cool. So that kind of gets through the framework of how you might be wanting to use harvest groups with the irrigation schedule. So now let's go in and check out some of what we can do in the system. So let's just get some normal values on here. And in our room dashboard, once the irrigation flag is enabled, you'll notice that we have this little drip drip over here. And there's two functions that we have allowed. Basically what it's for is to help people that aren't using harvest groups. So if we don't wanna use harvest groups, then we'll set things up as a room schedule. And this isn't gonna have necessarily any time frame allocated to it of the plant age. It's just gonna always be going unless we say Disable, so I can enable it right now. We'll see schedule pending. Basically what this is doing is pushing a uh, new irrigation schedule to the controller. We can edit it directly from here. So this is gonna be our options here. Maybe we just want a sp- pretty static irrigation schedule. Then we can also disable it. Harvest group schedules. This is going to be following that irrigation template that I talked about from our recipes or our harvest groups. So let's jump into here and see what I can do to make sure we get some irrigations planned. So make sure right? we got papaya in zones one, two, three, and four. And then let's jump into schedule and make sure I've got some irrigations planned for today. So let's say transition veg, no irrigation schedule yet. Let's throw one in here. We're gonna go for, let's go 95 seconds. Repeat every, let's go 20 minutes. Actually for this one, we might go a lot farther than that. And one of the things here is you also have a drop down. So if you do it in minutes, if you do it in hours, et cetera, let's go every four hours and we'll do it three times or three hours, make it somewhat realistic. Save that. And then we can see. All right, this is applying it to that stage, and we can save our schedule. When we go do that, it says irrigation schedule change. This all zones, and we added a P1. So let's do that. It started on eleven ten, so it should begin that irrigation schedule for us. And we can jump into the room dashboard and see that we now have a harvest group schedule in this little box we can see here's the phase that we're in here's the zones it's currently active and some representations of what our irrigation should look like so we're gonna have one two and three irrigations today hovering over the little irrigation mark will show us how long it's occurring for and what time they begin at also with uh, some information of our irrigation window and our drive-back duration so Uh, unless I missed something, that's a quick overview of
3: our open sprinkler integration. I only got one question you didn't cover. Okay. All right. So, uh, let's say I've got my generative stacking recipe and I get into, you know, midway through week two and I need to add a shot or add some volume. Can I do that from the dashboard or do I just go into the harvest group? Sure. So either,
2: or, um, when you go in here, it's actually going to, um, take you to the irrigation schedule that's in that harvest group right so if we modify it right here it, let's say we want it every two and a half hours we need to clean that up a little bit and it's going to say this program will be adjusted for all zones starting tomorrow uh p1 adjusted to that and changed interval to that so let's say confirm it's going to say start publishing a new irrigation schedule pending and then currently active so now that's modified it for all of our transition veg
3: right so as a grower when you you know come in in the morning you're checking out where your dryback got to you know you need to add some shots you can do it all in one spot right here you don't have to jump around into the harvest group schedule or go to irrigation templates you still have the ability to adjust it very easily right here absolutely
2: and one of the things that i would um you know recommend as well is start building out recipes as detailed as you need your irrigation changes so if you know that hey um you know my three-day road end period needs to have a irrigation change after that start building your phases based on your irrigation schedules now if you're changing every week just go week one week two week three week four um I always do recommend have some steering intention label with your weeks just to help your team you know keep an eye on hey if I've got 10-hour irrigation window and I'm meaning to be generative are we making or did we give something up we're we making the right decisions so um obviously as you begin to refine those recipes and, and your irrigations can become more detailed with a lot less work jumping back and forth into open sprinkler to turn on different programs
3: yeah and I really would like to highlight that uh labeling uh accuracy and diligence because if you are utilizing this you're going to build a large amount of irrigation templates and you know if you've got I mean people run a very wide variety of strains as far as numbers that they're running at any one time let's say you've got one you take it out of production I want to bring it back next year still want to save that irrigation recipe but also like Jason said you know media uh look at your recipe you're running just look at all the things because these are going to be very very specific and you know, like right here when you go in and I change that ske- that uh, harvest group schedule for the irrigation, I'm going to change it for that whole phase. So if I want to really be accurate in developing a new one, I might end up, you know, adding more phases as I'm going going through my first run building these.
2: Exactly. And maybe we'll just take a minute to talk about how, you know, some of the ways that you can save your modifications to a harvest group. So I built this harvest group from a recipe because it's a template and, you know, I'm a little bit lazy or I like to work smarter than harder. So I've built up a harvest group in the past. And what I did was I said, save as recipe. Uh, Obviously, if I'm making intentional changes to a harvest group that I might expect to be used in the future, then after I make those changes, I'll jump in and say, save as recipe. So in this case, let's talk a little bit about, all right, well, we wanted to add, uh, you know, another type of irrigation in here. And so if I go in and say, edit schedule, we could say, you know, rather than whatever this was called, we could say, run in and let's change it to say three days. And then we could add another, add phase. We'll drag this phase over right here after root in and maybe just call it dry down. And then let's go two days on here. And then we can add a different irrigation schedule in here. Maybe we need a few less shots because we're trying to encourage that root to uh, fill out the entire new media. So let's just say, all right, instead of 95 seconds, we're going to go to 45 seconds and we're going to repeat every four hours and maybe we're just going to do it twice and then when i save this as a recipe we can use that the next time we run and we won't have to remember the changes that we made and so kind of like you said it's very good practice to make your naming as complete as possible so that labeling is excellent in this case I just said save succeeded as a new recipe so let's jump into recipes here's the one I just saved and we can also copy them maybe we need to make two variations of the same Mm -hmm. recipe we could copy it in this case rather than being named the harvest group let's just call it um you know rock wool slabs um including um just like that and then we go back um and maybe i didn't do the best example of of giving as much information as possible but you might want to strain in there just depending on how many variations of irrigation schedules that you include so uh, don't be afraid to make that recipe name too long and that's what i've got do we have questions from the crowd on, on things that we can answer right now in the system
1: so far, no questions, but I mean, what an incredible walkthrough and preview. Um, it just seems like um, another way to just kind of help growers just like keep things dialed in, get that consistency dialed in um, so that they don't know that their quality uh, comes out the same every time. Yeah.
3: Yep. And it's really helping overcome, you know, for some people, like the port forwarding challenge is huge. You know, there's a lot of people out there that have used open sprinkler. One of the tough things they have with it is, you know, uh, at their facility, whoever's in charge of network security is just saying hard no to port forwarding, which, mm-hmm. as Jason said before, is quite responsible from a business owner's perspective or operator. But this allows them to bypass that and take advantage of, uh, you know, the open sprinkler hardware, which is incredibly cost effective and it's very adaptable. You know, we can use it to run one or two zones at once, run zones in sequence, or actually, Jason, you could actually probably show that little diagram we have. You can upgrade it so you can run as many zones as you want at the same time. Yeah. And all of these things are very cost effective. Um, They do require, you know, a little bit of research and uh, work on the client side. As far as building this system, it's not a super complete solution in its basic form, you know, but adding components is very, very simple and easy. And it's just super adaptable. You know, I've, I've known about up and sprinkler for a long, long time and it's, uh, proven itself in a lot of applications to work just fine. And part of that is, you know, the simplicity of it. We've got a control board running relays and there's not a whole lot else going on.
2: Sure. So I'm just going to reference what you're talking about there. And, um, I've done this personally quite a bit with success and I've also had uh, a number of clients do this with their, their systems in order to get, um, get as clean of output as possible. So basically what's going on here is an open sprinkler has, if you're, know a lot about electronics it's using a low current triac and what that's doing is it's acting like a switch to to turn on the 24 volts to this channel so um the restriction there is depending on how many valves we're trying to run concurrently at the same time we might run into some overcurrent protection on the open sprinkler uh depending on what type of valve you have you know, sometimes it's between two per some clients can run seven it's just going to really depend on the size and the brand of the valve that you're trying to operate so what uh you know what one of the things i do suggest is to offload the current into some type of industrial relay Um, that can be a relay board like shown here it can be individual relays Um, in this case this is a eight channel using a fairly standardized omneron relay and uh you know what you can see here is the open sprinkler is now just signaling the relay to power it from a, a reliable um transformer so this is just like 120 volt or 220 volt to 24 volt ac transformer and that way we can run as many valves as we want without worrying about open um, or overcurrent protection on the open sprinkler
3: yeah and that's you know uh aside from having expansion zones or you know multiple open sprinklers in one facility, that's all it takes to scale this little device up to commercial capability. I mean, also, you know, don't, don't hit it with the sprayer, maybe put it in a waterproof box, but I think that's one thing that uh, we've found so appealing why we like to work with open sprinkler. Um, it's just so open and adaptable. And really, I mean, I, I haven't done the install nearly as many times as Jason. I've installed and uninstalled mine four or five times now. But uh, the first time I did it, it took me less than an hour. It's it's very user friendly, very straightforward. And honestly, if you do want to use it, I highly encourage people to hook it up and actually, you know, get into the open sprinkler uh, dashboard, familiarize themselves a little bit with that because what you're seeing in Arroyo is based off of similar concepts, but we've really kind of focused it in for the cannabis cultivator.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, and kind of uh, a funny thing that open sprinkler was a little bit of a hobby project on a guy that wanted more control features for his home um, irrigation for watering his yard. He didn't find that the products on the market allowed him to have the right intervals, the number of irrigations, et cetera. I think that's why it's gotten so much traction in the indoor hydroponics scene is because sometimes we do need a substantial number of irrigations. sometimes those irrigations need to be fairly short and pulsed at whatever intervals that uh we choose and i you know i've actually been to some clients where we replaced their existing system with an open sprinkler and you know the the cost of it is pretty insignificant compared to almost any other control systems that uh that are traditional in this industry so you know i think an open sprinkler is like 150 bucks for the module and I forget how much the expansions are but you know they're like half under 100 100 bucks yeah Yeah. and and so you can have you know 72 channels for less than 300 bucks if if you're um, interested in replacing the system then just kind of think about the advantages you can get more flexibility than most of the other available controllers Um, obviously if you are using it with aurora then you can have secure internet access without necessarily having any any it configuration going on and um yeah, at, you know, we don't have any affiliation with OpenSprinkler. We've just chosen the product because of client popularity and ease of integration.
3: Yep, and it's it's been around long enough. It's kind of proven to work. I mean, now that a long time ago, OpenSprinkler started, as Jason said, kind of open source software came out, and now that they've got a physical product, what they've done is put together a unit that functions really well, actually, um, and it requires, I mean, shoot. If you can terminate 24 volt wires like just like hooking up any other sprinkler controller uh you, you can do it it's that easy
1: amazing jason seth thank you so much for walking us through that um for anybody who joined us late or um just is still thinking about what they just heard if you have any questions about um, our new irrigation control please do drop it in the chat let's get you some answers live um so it looks like we we actually have a lot of questions <laughs> just related just in general you guys ready to just keep it moving on to our usual crop steering sensors and cultivation goodness
2: sure yeah just some comments on the the open sprinkler stuff um if you're an existing client you're interested yeah, your admin will be seeing a notification next week about our product launch uh, we're going to include some links in our resource center to, to help you either purchase those, or if you've got questions about the open sprinkler itself, some of the, the FAQs from their site, um, yeah, contact us, shoot us an email, give us a call and, and get signed up on the list so we can uh, make sure that we know that you want this turned on. That's it.
1: Get in line. Awesome. Okay. We're going to dig right into the questions here. And Diane posted a couple. Let's start with the first one here. When I'm stacking EC and stretch, when I'm feeding, I'm aiming for 0% runoff. Or do I still need runoff?
2: That's the first question. So usually, I mean, without senior data, my rule of thumb is using runoff to modulate EC. Um, so rather than making big changes in your feed EC, stay at a pretty static EC for your feed lines, makes mixing easy on a database basis, makes it easy for your employees to do things right. And then modulate how much runoff. So if you need to drop the EC closer to, uh, or the substrate EC closer to your feed EC, then push for a little bit more runoff.
3: Yeah. You know, to build on that, where the other thing we're looking at too, and we're talking about runoff, uh, we're always watching pH pH is a really big uh, contributor and director of plant nutrient availability. If we have the wrong pH, we're going to see deficiencies. So really we do want to push runoff. um, Not necessarily every single day during stretch, you know, Uh, going more than two or three days without it. I personally would want to get some runoff and check my pH and make sure that that's not climbing or falling downward pretty rapidly. Uh, That being said, as these plants grow some of them feed very heavily so if you do have something like arroya, you can easily watch and see okay i am maintaining ec in the block or it's going down with my feed rate i need to get more in there i'm going to push less runoff to try to drive that up or no runoff but again we still always want to have a good balance in ph and in order to achieve that we've got to be replacing everything that the plant's pulling out and also flushing out some of the things that it's not so yeah. Rule of thumb, no more than three days without runoff, I think, is usually that's that's what I call safe. And again, if you're going to do that, pay real close attention to your runoff pH afterward.
1: Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Um, Diane posted a second question here. He's wondering if my terrace doesn't show me accurate water content in the medium, how should my leaves look? Should they start wilting right before watering? Is that the perfect dryback?
2: Uh, I'm going to just break down this question a little bit. Uh, we'll start with the one. If my ta- uh, Taurus doesn't show me accurate water content, um, probably check out your cleaning procedures and, or your installation consistency on that device. Uh, you know, we've got tens and tens of thousands of these out there and I forgot specifically on Taurus 12, but it's, it's well over 50,000 of these in the field and it's a very rare Occurrence that we ever get one that doesn't have accurate water content. You know, they are calibrated for the lifetime of the sensor. So make sure that you're cleaning those prongs off. Um, try not to use anything that's abrasive that can change the surface properties of the stainless steel on those prongs. Um, you know, isopropanol alcohol is great. Um, hydrochlorous acid, you, know, you can use bleach, any of those types of things. And if you do have salt buildup, you know, this is a kind of a trick I learned from Seth, it's just leave the Taros and a cup of water. Obviously, not the repeating or the the nose, if you will, the, the the electronics, but just the the white part with the prongs. You can leave it in a solution for uh, you know overnight or for a day to to kind of help it dissolve some of the buildup on there. Um, as far as installation consistency, make sure you are using an installation template and you know what size media that you're using. If you're using in something like a hard pot, make sure that you've cut out a slot so that the entire Body of the terras twelve that plastic that white plastic body can sit flush in the substrate, um, and that that should get you a pretty realistic, accurate water content. Uh, obviously, some natural variations occur, and the substrate itself, you know, is the chip consistency good near cocoa um do you have some perlite pockets in there have you experienced um irrigation channeling in your rock wool from letting it dry down too much or not having good initial uh, wet up procedures that type of thing so um kind of breaking down your question into a second part here should they start wilting right before watering? So I'm going to answer this, like, how do you crop steer without sensors? Okay. Um, if we're trying to read the plant, we're missing out on a huge opportunity. If we are getting to wilting, we've probably already damaged some of the potential production from that plant. Um, you might be able to tell from some of the physiological behaviors of the plant I'm I know I'm not good enough to do that and so uh you know if I'm trying to run thousands of plants it's, it's very unrealistic to spend that much time with each plant to try and understand how it's performing whereas using substrate sensor data we can document it and compare it store it for different strains and then how they perform when we're trying a certain type of dryback
3: right and I, you know I'd really like to highlight too that in any of these crop steering techniques we're not you know especially generative steering obviously what we're talking about here we're well ideally we're talking about here if you don't have a huge plant a tiny tiny pot but we're not trying to actually push drought stress on these plants i think there's some confusion around that term in the industry we're, we're looking for a dry bag, but really what we're doing is spacing out those irrigations and spacing it you know slowing down uh growth in the plant slowing down respiration because the roots don't they're not continually getting oxygen they're not as active not growing the plant as fast uh we're not ever trying to apply actual drought stress to these we're not trying to get close to wilting point what that does is slow down the plant if we get there we get more water on it but the plant's got to recover if we're going back to actually seeing physical wilting that means every day when we water that plant we're wasting precious time rehydrating it to a baseline and if you uh, extend that time over you know 63 days 56 days it adds up. It leads to a considerable loss in production time. The same as, you know, if we over dry and, or over dry repeatedly day after day, we're just spending less and less time, or we're spending more and more time in a condition where the plant's not being productive. And uh, yeah, any, anytime your plant is looking, you know, anything but healthy, even first thing in the morning, uh, that's not a good sign. You know, we're, we're in cannabis right now in the interest of quality, we're all pushing for not, not running on the bare bones side of things, you know, like when we're talking about field agriculture and we look at drought resistance and stuff, that's, uh, how little effort can we put into this to achieve some sort of profitable result? And while we do kind of have that same mentality now that we throw, you know, quality in there and, uh, especially, you know, efficient operators, people are looking at, doing a little bit more. We're looking, you know, we don't want to find out how little CO2 we need to get our yield. We want to just make sure we've got adequate CO2 because it's not uh, an unobtainium expensive product.
1: Love that. That is a great overview. Thank you both so much. Um, We've got some live questions in from YouTube. I'm going to send it to you in one second, Mandy, but just a reminder for everybody's on with us. You got any questions about our new irrigation feature? You got any questions about Arroyo? Anything? Drop it in the chat. And now's your chance to get questions live answered.
0: What's going on at YouTube, Mandy? Yeah, we got some shout outs. We got some questions. Uh, Iron Armor. It's my favorite time of the favorite part of the day. So yeah, that's also my uh, favorite day of the week. Um, 505 Colt had a question. Talk about cocoa and crop steering pros and cons.
3: All right. Yeah, we'll hop in. I... If you love cocoa, uh, good. It's a great product. Um, it doesn't suffer some of the same structural integrity issues that rock wool does. So, you know, we can easily push a bigger dryback if we've got a high, a high water holding capacity cocoa, you know, if we can get 65% VWC in cocoa, I can dry that all the way back to 25% pretty safely. So long as I'm watching my EC range and not running an incredibly high EC as a baseline. Um,
2: so to kind of add on that as well is, uh it's more forgiving is kind of the, Mm -hmm. the human way that I say it you know without without involving the science of matrix potential and cation exchange capacity yeah you know if you are interested in those check out some of our other episodes I love talking about it. So I try to talk about it most often, but we have hit it probably too many times <laughs> to, to be chatting about it again. But, uh, why I say it's more forgiving is with rock wool, the available water to the roots it is there almost to 0%. Right. And so what's going to happen is that that plant's going to pull, pull and pull water from that, um, that rock wool until it's at zero and then it can't and then it's going to hit wilting very very quickly uh, whereas rockwell it's got a more gradual dry down curve when we get on the, the low end of the cocoa, water content or cocoa yeah yep. <laughs> it's okay um cocoa has a, a more gradual dry down when we get to the, the low end of that water content so if it will miss a day irrigation or uh you know we don't have automated irrigation set up yet then uh, then our plants are going to slowly start to to show signs of stress before we run into that that cell rupture wall that uh, where the, where they lose integrity.
3: Yep. And we're also getting our field capacity back with the cocoa, you know, a single over drying event in that rock wall. And you've, depending on when it happened in the cycle, like if it happens during the first three weeks, uh, you can kind of kiss your, your good yields goodbye. Cause you're never going to have the water capacity in that rock wall to be able to run generatively or ripen very well. You might still end up with some, okay, pretty decent product. It's just definitely not going to be as much as you wanted if you're not able to maintain that field capacity.
0: Super important stuff to keep in mind. Uh, Yeah, you'll have to let us know if you have any follow ups. We also got a question from KCC. Uh, Can you shed some light, uh, shed some info on proper cloning strategy um, like the length that DOME should stay on, spraying or not, um, when to first water, etc. What do you guys think?
2: Um... (sighs) I don't necessarily have my own SOPs specifically related to some of those dates. I, I know a couple nutrient companies out there that have released this information. Um, some of the other suppliers out there have, have pretty reasonable SOPs. I would go off of what you're doing now, document it, and uh, work from changes in that direction. So, you know, maybe use those other SOPs as references. You know what you're doing now, it works up to some degree. That's why you're still able to do it. Uh, so, product uh or cloning improvements is going to be kind of an iterative step for you you know take that information that's working for other people maybe run one batch with you know some of the changes that uh another vendor has recommended and and go from there
3: yeah and you know I think uh aside from using different types of cloning media or you know let's say arrow cloning versus cloning in Um procedure is fairly standardized even if we're aero cloning versus cloning in rock wool we're still trying to take very similar cuts and by that we're trying to go with the same number of nodes having a good cut not leaving too much below the node and then you know there's there is going to be no perfectly pre-made cloning tech for your facility because every facility's got its own little variables Um, if every clone room was the same had perfect control uh, and could run domeless hey now we're talking about a really uniform environment. But the reality is most of us have to run domes because that's the only way to control the environment that tightly on a micro level. And then beyond that, we gotta look at, okay, different strains are gonna react differently. Different moms are gonna provide better cuts that root faster. So there's a few things that go into that. And I think one of the best things you can do as a cultivator is be open to using just some simple tools to analyze what's going on in your cloning room. If you can get a scale in there, you know, measure what a saturated rock will slab with clones on it weighs, make it so you can pull it off and see. okay, how much water did we pull up out of here? How much do I want to see? You know, usually probably close to up, even up to a 50% dry back before we add water, but hey, that might be day four, five, six, seven, you know, how, how aggressive are those clones? How quickly are they rooting in? Um, Strain to strain. I've definitely cloned some strains off of some really good moms that I would say we probably have well over 50, 60% cloning success rate without even using any rooting hormone, other strains, uh, other people cutting it, not the case. So there's a lot of variables. And I think the best you can do is document every step as much as you can and try to repeat things over and over and be really, really diligent about your cleanliness. You know, that's one of the biggest things right now with, uh, we see hops latent running around, um, That, that really forced a lot of people in the industry to go, okay, I've got to, you know, be really careful when I'm out there taking cuts to switch scissors, be careful with my sanitation and follow that sanitation uh, protocol all the way through. Not just say, all right, they're in the clone room. We got to, we got to clean the clone room. We've got to, you know, really make sure there's no holes in that program.
2: Yeah. And, you know, cloning is kind of, it's an expensive procedure and it's even more expensive if you're not doing it as effectively as you possibly can. So, you know, as big a head start as we can get with these plants, the more days we can cut off of our cycle and increase or maintain production quantities.
3: Mm -hmm. And, you know, a big part of it too, that I always like to stress to people, uh, that's part of where the art of this come in, comes in. Cloning is definitely a skill. So, uh, it's not something that I would expect to just pick up a new employee with no cultivation experience and say, Hey, uh, you better get 90% or better. Otherwise you're fired. Like, no, you've, you've got to build up people and really develop those skills and techniques.
2: And one of the most simple things that, uh, catches almost everybody I know in production off guard every once in a while is label your clones correctly. That might save you a headache down the road.
3: Yep. Label your clones. Um, I like to put a little piece of masking tape with initials on there of who took the cuts. That way uh, I can have them come back and look at them, you know, really get them to develop like, okay, if I cut them a certain way that I tried this time, wow, we lost 30%. Okay. Let's not do that next time. You know, really just uh, yeah. Looking at the procedure holistically and making sure you don't have any gaps. It always goes back to that.
0: That's really great advice and it's super important. Um, Yeah, I, I think that's it over on YouTube right now, but I think that we're getting live questions in the chat. So I'm going to pass it over to Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, that was a great uh,
1: overview. Again, um, just for anybody who's on with us live, we posted a reminder um, office hours episode last month. We actually talked quite a bit about cloning. So maybe there's some helpful tips in there for you. Um, But moving on to live questions here, Diane posted a couple. They wrote, can I spray uh, copper or manganese on my plants in stretch? Same for the calcium. And if yes, uh, what form of calcium should I spray?
3: copper and calcium. I don't, I don't think we're growing grapes. So, uh, (laughs) during stretch, um, it sounds like you're talking about foliar nutrient applications. Uh, personally, that's not something I go for too much. Um, usually that means I'm probably missing something in my feeding program. As far as calcium sprays, that's not something I really approach. I do know some people that occasional price calcium silicate. Um, I don't necessarily see a big need for it personally, as far as silicate goes, that included, get it in your feed.
2: And he's asking about manganese too. I oh, think yeah, that's manganese. what you meant in the,
3: the, first answer there, but okay. Uh, manganese. Yeah. I've never found a, a need to spray manganese on my plants at all. That's a, it's a trace element that you would find in the feed and, uh, typically when we're talking about deficiencies, you know, I always go back to this, we've got molders chart and all these different relationships. So if we're trying to diagnose something in say it's manganese, look at that chart, then start looking at your pH. If you really go down the rabbit hole, you can get into tissue analysis and that can be helpful. If you are lucky enough to be growing the same strain all the time and you can do some time series analysis there, but typically you're going to find your results in raising or lowering your EC levels. And then also being able to maintain a program for a whole run. If I try to diagnose a plant and I throw some CalMag at it, and then I switch up my feed ratios and do all these uh, reactive things, suddenly I've got too many variables and I don't know which thing actually made a difference. And even when we're talking like uh, any kind of plant nutrient deficiency, always stress every one of these, uh, parameters in terms of like, Hey, what's a good nitrogen content inside tissue. Every one of those is determined experimentally. So we're kind of loose on the guidelines right now of what everything should look like. And even if we look at other agriculture, when we get outside of, you know, one variety, we start to see variation too. So probably don't, you know, Uh, lose too much sleep over deficiencies and just try to start playing with raising or lowering that EC and maintaining consistency. And remember that plants don't heal. That's the worst part about that stuff as a grower. You walk in every day and you see a dying leaf or something and then it never turns green again. Well, it's never going to. (laughs) That's just an unfortunate reality.
1: Seth, I wish I had heard that advice from you when I was growing my plants. (laughs) But now I know for next year. (laughs) Diane, thank you so much for your questions. And I mean, we love to hear from growers who try things and come back to us with some results. So if you try any of those things and see some interesting results, let us know. Um, All right. We're going to keep it moving. We have about just over 10 minutes left in the program. If you have any questions live, now's the time to ask them. I'm going to move on to this question we got on Instagram from Dave Ray can you guys talk through an average day as far as irrigation goes in veg and gen strategies? I'd really like to understand what's ideal throughout the day and watch an explanation of the events happening during the day. What do you guys think?
2: Sure. Um, I think, you know, also if you visit some of our uh, earlier episodes, we, we do talk about this quite a bit as well. Um, my basis is when I'm running a more generative irrigation schedule, I'm having a shorter irrigation window so when i say irrigation window that's first irrigation to last irrigation of the day and for uh if i'm pushing generative really really hard it might be as short as an hour if i need to balance out some of my other environmental factors it might be three or four hours um for vegetative steering, that's going to be a wide irrigation window. So getting up to field capacity, um, maintaining it with some irrigations throughout the day to encourage uh, infrastructural growth to the plant. And uh, so that would be something like usually an eight or 10 hour irrigation window.
3: Yeah. A way I like to simplify it, you know, uh, the ultimate generative strategy would be to go back to your bigger pot size, like three and a half, five gallons with medium-sized plant, You're watering once in the morning with one big shot and then not touching it for a day Uh, so basically one thing to really think about is the total number of irrigation events in a day is going to affect whether we're running vegetative or generative so even in a generative strategy like when we talk about rockwool for instance the reason we're you know putting on maybe five six shots in p1 hey is that ideal generatively no but that's a limitation of the medium So that's what we're relying on is that longer dry back time and then when we get into vegetative like jason said we're opening that up to 10 hours we're also giving it that many more irrigations so that's why if you look at uh some graphs that are zoomed in you might notice that there are 16 18 20 22 irrigations throughout the day inside of that 10 hour window Um, that's what we're looking at to drive that so it changes a little bit based on media size and type but total number of shots in that time window and how long our dry back is, is what's really driving there.
2: Yeah. And you know, one of the most important things that sometimes I do forget to mention when we get into crop steering, which just because I'm excited about irrigation specifically is, you know, taking consideration to the rest of our environmental, um, and genetic factors. So, uh, you know, am I restricted to a more generative leaning or vegetative leaning environment? Do I need to modify my irrigation to balance out some other limitation that I'm encountering? Is it a generative or vegetatively leaning type of cultivar? um you know if it's and i think i've used this one dozens and dozens of times now but i'll talk about like mac one as a very generative leaning type of genetic and then say something like blue dream as a very vegetative type of genetic and you know if you run them both balanced those genes show themselves very obviously you know is going to be pretty stubby in comparison and your big your blue dream is going to be tall stretchy and lots of uh lots of growth infrastructure as far as leaves stems and stocks
3: go yeah i mean that's it's really important to remember that these are uh crop steering is not one program it's a set of tools and it's going to be applied slightly differently to uh different strains in different situations you know and one of the best things you can do as a cultivator especially right now in the industry i think we're hitting a time now where uh, enough people are starting to keep track of data and have the ability to represent or run pretty well that you can start trusting some of that data but you know previously if we go back like 10 years i'm looking at seeds or clones somewhere and uh, i don't i don't know much about how the person i'm getting from them would have grown that particular strain like how, what kind of a grower are you growing outside in northern california in a 10 gallon pot? Are you growing, you know, under HPS? Like just those little changes make a lot of difference. So really tracking your own progress is what is going to make you the most successful right now.
2: I mean, it's kind of fun. I think, you know, in the last year or two, we've seen a resurgence of some of the, um, legacy strains, if you will, some of the, the older stuff that wasn't necessarily profitable without, um, tailoring in the crop steering that we see nowadays. So for me, it's really fun to, you know, have, have some of those strains pop back into popularity that weren't necessarily the highest yielding at the time. But now when we've learned the tools to make its full potential or the best potential we know right now, then, uh, then they can, they can make it back into that list.
3: Oh, absolutely. And there's certain strains I know that I've grown that were, uh, for all the cultivators I worked with, it was, was really frustrating, notoriously finicky, depending on the season where when we we're working in the greenhouse or certain variables. So what this allows us to do is actually quantify what made that that strain perform and then replicate it uh, without insight. That's sometimes is really hard. You know, we got let's say we've got fresh irrigation in one room versus the room next door. And these plants are really, really, uh, sensitive to over drying or being over watered. Okay. Well, just because we've got one irrigation system, that's say three runs deep versus a brand new one, probably going to want to watch my water contents and make some adjustment to the irrigation schedule, because more than likely I don't have a hundred percent flow rate on that one. That's three or five runs deep compared to a brand new irrigation system
1: amazing. Um, and I will just say as somebody who's a big fan of some of the classics out there, I am all for documenting uh, so you can, we can put them back in circulation. Wonderful. All right. So just a reminder to anybody who just joined us, if you have any questions, now's the time. We're going to be wrapping up the show in less than 10 minutes, but we want to, we, we prioritize our live attendees first. I've got another right in here on Instagram. This is from Lockie, one of our good friends. They wrote in, is there a tipping point when it comes to making environmental decisions environmental decisions based off BPD say if temps get to 90 and you're in late flower should you shoot for 70% relative humidity if you have botrytis in your environment what do you guys saying uh
2: yeah there there definitely is tipping <laughs> points um you know I I use BPD to match my humidity to my temperature so usually you know, given appropriate control systems, uh, I'll shoot for an ideal temperature um, night and day, depending on the plant life cycle and genetics that I'm trying to optimize mm-hmm. uh, and the expression of that genetic. And so, you know, if I'm trying to hit a specific temperature, usually not 90 degrees, um, then I will try and match my. Humidity to hit that, uh, you know, in the case example that you said, you know, close to, um, harvest and 90 degrees, not a good thing. It's 70% humidity. That's not gonna be a good thing either. Um, you know, if you're outdoor, you gotta make the best, um, concessions that you can,
3: um, or compromises that you can. And, uh, I think, you know, you want to look at everything it takes for these pathogens to survive. So Jason's absolutely right. There's a point, a tipping point when VPD is not our only judge. And the other thing we're going to have to start looking at is temperature. Now, regardless of VPD, um, not totally regardless, but for instance, at a certain humidity range, um, mold, botrytis, is going to be more active and healthier down at 65 degrees than it's going to be at 80. So at 80 or 90 degrees, yes, you can run that at higher humidity at 90 degrees and 70% humidity. I mean, that's honestly almost low, but what you can't do is drop your temperature overnight. If you can't, you know, maintain that VPD, you, if you're at 90 degrees, you certainly don't want to drop down to 70 or 65 and say, Hey, I'm going to get this weed to purple up. That's how you're going to mold it. You're going to be locked in between more like 82 and 90 the rest of your run. And you know, um, I think we've talked about it before there's been a few times over the years on the forums where people have posted uh these kind of crazy runs where their DHU stopped working you know on week seven week eight and they're like well i'll just crank it up or the ac went out so they just got it really humid to maintain their vpd and they pulled off and harvest uh, harvest without molding everything out but that doesn't mean it was ideal you know uh <laughs> Adventure stories are great, but that's not how we want to live our lives every day to make money, I guess. You know, not all of us anyway. Some of us want to have a consistent turnaround product every time.
2: Yeah, maybe this is a good time just to talk about um, what relative humidity is. Uh, Temperature, I think everyone's pretty familiar with it. Relative humidity, we all know what it feels like. But by definition, relative humidity is the uh, percentage of water in the air of holding capacity at that temperature. So when we change temperatures, uh, the amount of water in the air doesn't have to change for our relative humidity to change. So if I have a static amount of water in the air and my temperature goes up, my relative humidity is going to go down because our warmer temperatures can hold a higher capacity of, um, of water. So another way to say that would be is if I'm a hundred percent humidity at 60 degrees, uh, I'm going to have less water in the air than I will if I'm at a hundred percent humidity at 80 or 90 degrees. Um, one of the things we do in Aroy also is we allow you to display absolute humidity. Uh, it's not necessarily really applicable to some of the growing techniques, but it is very applicable to sizing some of your equipment. So absolute humidity is going to be how much water is in the air regardless of the temperature. So just some fun things to kind of keep track of if you're, you are worried about those big changes or you're at the edge of a tipping point with, uh, with VPD. Like we're talking here.
3: Yeah. I also encourage people to check out. There's a lot of extension resources. I bring that up sometimes from universities, but, uh, for any given, uh, plant disease that we run into commercially, agriculturally, weed's not special. Uh, Guess what? Apple growers deal with botrytis, rose growers, all kinds of people. So you can find some of these known values, such as like temperature ranges that things can survive in, humidity ranges, times of the year to expect running into that versus other times of the year in your area. Um, All of that's really helpful and freely available. Um, Iron Armor, though.
1: Yeah, Iron Armor posted something here. Iron Armor, I'm going to read it. And then if you'd like to unmute yourself to clarify, feel free. Um, Can you give me a quick example of overwatering? And when generative steering, should I st- be stacking my field capacity, VWC, lower than in veg bulk stage? Or should I be stacking it up close to my first initial saturation on hydration to be able to get bigger dry backs without getting the medium VWC too low that it is compromising it? Anything else you want to add there, Iron Armor? No?
2: Okay. Yeah. So we're gonna we're going to start from your question backwards here because you asked the easy one. Uh, second and absolutely yeah so when we talk about uh, generative usually we want to get up to we like to call it field capacity it's slightly different than saturation but in application fairly similar um so yeah we want to use uh, our irrigations to get up to that field capacity and then since we are at field capacity we can run a nice big dry down um based on the size of our media and um, transpiration evaporation rates in in the plant and substrate um example of overwatering yeah absolutely so um probably two types of overwatering one would just be having way too much water in there so getting to field capacity and continuing to irrigate yeah you'll probably get runoff um it's probably not as bad as having overwatering as a stagnation thing where we're just always watering throughout the day um mostly we're not exercising the roots
3: Yep. That's the the main thing I see when overwatering and generative is people uh, typically aren't patient for that dryback in the beginning. So like, let's say we've got a Delta 10 on top of a slab. We've got to wait, you know, three to five days to get an appreciable dryback on that slab. Um, The biggest thing I've seen is people worrying about it and trying to hit those P1s too early, you know, not not waiting and being gentle with your, you know, little root and irrigations and then keeping it too saturated and not waiting for that dry back. And then like Jason described the other situation where you're re- pushing too much runoff, that's just not gonna ever let you stack up your EC. You know, that's how we go to kind of, uh, I would say like, you know, cocoa tech from like 10 years ago, we're keeping it in the two to three EC range in the root zone the whole time, maybe even down to one and a half and just pretty much flushing it back to that every day. And you're wasting nutrients trains and water. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, that, that gets pretty expensive for sure. And as far as that field capacity goes, um, you know, ideally when we're talking about rock wool, especially, and cocoa, it's not as much of a concern because we can get it back. But typically we'll, you know, plant into a media that's anywhere from 70 to 85% saturated or percent volumetric water content. After that root-in period, those roots have taken up some of that pore space. And we typically see volumetric water content at field capacity in the 60 to 65% range. Um, and then those subsequent over-dryings compromise it. And that's when we'll start to see it drift downwards. Yeah.
2: I, you know, one of the easiest ways as well, if you are using a media that you're not used to or you have a different supplier, um, field capacity is when you're still irrigating. You get some runoff and you don't see the irrigation. Uh, the volumetric water content excuse me rise so a lot of times we will see it kind of start to just top off if you're looking at your arroyos and and, you know obviously, obviously if you're documenting how much runoff you have just use that as a calculation on how you can easily reduce your runoff um
1: Awesome. Thank you guys. And uh, oh, Iron Armor, thank you so much for your question. Drop your email address in the chat. We would love to enter you into our raffle. We have one last question from Diane. So we're going to wrap it up with this one. What is the lowest temperature I should go for between the uh, go? What is the lowest temperature I should go before harvest and not expect mold? Nighttime, ideally.
2: Uh, yeah. Daytime temps, it's going to depend a little bit on how much airflow you have, what types of lights you're using, um, genetic preference. Um, I mean, I wouldn't go below 70 absolutely for a daytime temperature. I mean, if, you know, if you have some, some issues getting heat into your environment, I mean, like 70 would be the, the lowest that I'd run for, for anything during the day. Um, simply because I, you know, if I'm trying to, Get the expression of anthocyanins color during ripening then you know a 10 degree night differential would put me at 60 degrees which is not good at all any time of day or night um so just kind of that's the low end extremes um you know more yeah. morally like just idealistic would be a
3: little bit higher up than that but 75 day, 65 night is about as low as I prefer to go. Um, as far as mold goes though, I mean, genetic preference has a big factor in that there's a wide range of mold resistance I've seen in strains. Um, there are strains that I've grown that I wouldn't worry about getting down close to 60 degrees because I've put them through the ringer quite a few times and those don't mold even when the bench next to them is just covered. So that is a huge factor. And then also, you know, what is your environment like? do you have the ability to maintain a uh, 1.3 to 1.5 VPD at 65 degrees? Um, If not, then that's not something you can do in your facility.
1: Wonderful. Awesome. Thanks to everybody who submitted some questions today. Appreciate you, Um, Jason and Seth. Thank you so much for that wonderful preview of our irrigation future. And as in general, sharing your knowledge with us. Mandy, thank you for co-moderating with me. We ran a little late. I'm going to wrap it up here. Thank everybody for joining us for Arroya Office Hours. We do this every Thursday and the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. Reminder to our Arroya clients, reach out to your client success rep to get in line for your irrigation um, integration setup. If you don't have Arroya and want to learn more, book a demo and our experts will walk you through all the ways Arroyo can help uh, you improve your cultivation production process. Um, If there's a topic you'd like covering in a future episode of Office Hours, post questions anytime via the Arroya app. Feel free to drop them in the chat. Send us an email to support.aroya.metergroup.com. Send us an Instagram DM. We love to hear from you. We record every session. We'll email everybody in attendance a link to the video. It'll also live on the Arroya YouTube channel. Like, subscribe and share while you're there. We're going to be at MJ BizCon next week. So hit us up if you want to meet up. Um, otherwise, we'll look
0: forward to seeing you next time. Thanks so much, everybody. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io.